What's worse than partying while people suffer under lockdown rules? Well, for the Tory grassroots, it might well be offending Her Majesty the Queen. Boris Johnson has now done both. Will this finally, finally be the end of him? To discuss that question and the events which have broken over the past 24 hours, I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. How are you doing, Aaron? Michael, it's a pleasure to be joining you this evening. It's been a very entertaining news week, I have to say. We've got lots of stories related to, to Boris Johnson and these Downing Street parties. We're also going to talk tonight the latest on Prince Andrew, no longer His Royal Highness, and a story about a Chinese agent having influence in Westminster. We're going to talk about how seriously we should take that one. Lots of journalists making a very big deal out of it. This has been Boris Johnson's worst week. And thanks to a story in The Telegraph, his old newspaper, it's all got a lot worse for the Prime Minister. Tony Diver is The Telegraph's political correspondent. And late last night, he tweeted, Exclusive. Number 10 held two boozy parties the night before the Queen mourned Prince Philip alone. Staff drank and at points danced until the early hours of the night of April the 16th. Hours later, the Queen went to a socially distanced funeral for Philip. And you can see there, the, the image used is the Queen sitting on her own at Prince Philip's funeral. Apparently, there were two parties held in Downing Street on the night before Philip's funeral. One was for Boris Johnson's outgoing chief spin doctor, that's James Slack, who is now deputy editor at The Sun. More on that later. The other was for a Downing Street photographer. Apparently, the two parties would ultimately merge before going late into the night. It's worth going through some of the details as reported by The Telegraph. They say, someone was sent to the co-op on the Strand, a busy street nearby, with a suitcase, which was then filled with bottles of wine and brought back to Downing Street, according to one person at the gathering that night. In the basement, there is said to have been a party atmosphere. A laptop had been placed on a photocopier and music was blaring out. Shelley Williams Walker, Mr. Johnson's head of operations, was in charge of the music at points, according to one eyewitness. She was jokingly named DJ SWW, a reference to her initials, according to one present that night. You can see how creative these people are. As the evening wore on, the alcohol still flowing, those celebrating the photographer's departure headed to the Downing Street Garden. One present said there was a fear that too much wine was spilling on the basement carpet as they danced. They are said to have relocated at around midnight. One Downing Street figure had a go on a child's swing belonging to Wilf Johnson, the Prime Minister's son, according to one eyewitness and broke it. On the date at which the two parties took place in Downing Street, England was in stage two of Boris Johnson's path out of lockdown. That meant mixing indoors was barred, except for people within your own household. And outdoors, people could only meet in groups of six or two households. Clearly, that does not include 30 people in a basement with a DJ and a suitcase of wine. That was not within the rules at that time. Aaron, Boris Johnson's excuse this time is that he was away this weekend at Chequers. But the fact this all happened the day before the Queen mourned her husband, I mean, this really does seem like it's going to be hard for him to shake off this one, right? Michael, it's explosive. It is absolutely explosive. Imagine you're a Tory councillor up for re-election in May. Imagine you're a Tory MP who's in a marginal constituency looking at re-election in 2023, 2024. Across the country, these people are talking about whether or not he should go now, whether he should go after May, whether they should hold on and he should contest the next election. I have to say, if Boris Johnson holds on and he contests another general election with the Conservative Party and they aren't completely decimated, it would be the biggest political comeback in this country's history. It would be utterly remarkable. There was an opinion poll out today showing his personal approval ratings are the same as Jeremy Corbyn's or worse after the 2019 general election, which even for people who were quite supportive of Labour under Corbyn, that political direction, I think we all agree that was a political nadir for the party and for the left more broadly. So a lot of people recognise he is in trouble. And I think there's an assessment going on now, probably over the next 72 hours, about how quickly that needs to be remedied. And the key thing here is, who is going to grab the opportunity amongst his colleagues to try and replace him as, uh, as the party leader? I mean, we can talk about that as the show progresses, but I think the circumstances aren't particularly favourable for them. They would have to come in. They certainly don't want to come in before local elections. 
They're going to see high inflation. They're going to see energy prices rise. They're going to have to introduce new taxes at some point. These aren't the kinds of things that an ambitious Conservative MP wants to face if they're going to be in 10 Downing Street. So hugely interesting moment. The man is politically dead, I think, but he's nowhere near out of the door because once he goes, that poses quite difficult questions to quite a few people, you know, not just senior Tories, but party members too. And also, I think at the bottom of all of this is a lot of people made an incredibly bad call. Who can you trust in terms of their character judgment, their ability to judge a person who said that Boris Johnson should be prime minister? And you have these people who canvassed across the country for the Tories in 2019 in local elections just last year when they did very well. Again, those same people know they need to go and confront the electorate defending this man. It's going to be very hard. And for the Lib Dems, the Greens, for Labour canvassers over the next few months, they're going to make hay because nobody wants to defend the Conservative Party, even Tory party activists. You've laid out the dilemma for the likes of Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss well, people who you know seem to want to take the leadership from Boris Johnson, is that now is not actually an ideal time to become leader of the Conservative Party. There's going to be a cost of living crisis. There's a while until the next general election for a bunch of things to go wrong. But the longer they keep him in office, the more they are associated with him. So every day that this crisis goes on, everyone knows that Rishi Sunak is Boris Johnson's next door neighbour. He is allowing him to continue in that job. So you could say it would be better for his political capital to strike sooner rather than later. At the same time, no one wants to be leader of the Tories for the next six months. So it's going to be, I mean, super interesting to see what happens. Let's talk about what Downing Street is saying about this. You might have heard Boris Johnson is not saying anything for the next seven days because apparently a close member of, or a member of his close family, sorry, has tested positive for COVID-19. And even though the law doesn't suggest you have to self-isolate if that's the case. You should just take daily lateral flow tests. He's decided that he's going to be so responsible this time around that he is not going to leave Downing Street for seven days. He's not going to communicate with anyone, which is uh, very convenient, not suspicious at all. But let's go to what th their official statements are. So number 10 is not confirming or denying details of the party and are leaving it to civil servant Sue Gray to investigate. They have, though, announced they've apologised to the Queen. And the two positions combined led to quite a strange outcome at today's Downing Street press briefing. So Jim, Jim Picard, a journalist at the FT, he tweeted, in the latest surreal twist, Downing Street's deputy spokesman told reporters that number 10 has apologised to the palace, but wouldn't say what for. So we're in exactly the same situation we've been in over and over and again, where Boris Johnson is saying, no rules were broken at the party. They're like, well, did a party happen? Oh, I can't say whether there was a party. Now they've apologised to the Queen, but they can't say precisely what they have apologised to the Queen for. Of course, they will only know whether or not a party took place and who was there once Sue Gray delivers her findings. That's what we are all led to believe. Now, there'll be no other way to find out. But we do already have sight of an excuse the Tories might turn to if she does decide rules were broken. And we must consider, as this goes to an inquiry, and we look into what happened with COVID, whether all those regulations were proportionate or whether it was too hard on people. Whether it was too hard on people. So the rules were broken, but that's okay because they were too hard to follow anyway. Now, despite being hard, most of us managed to follow those rules. It was hard. More importantly, though, while there might be circumstances where I'd accept rules can sometimes be broken or stretched, that doesn't apply if it was you who made those rules. If you thought the rules were not workable, you shouldn't have enforced them on everyone else. And... That claim that it was the rules that were wrong, not the people breaking them, has also led to questions as to whether some people should be entitled to refunds. So the Evening Standard have reported that a woman from Hackney was fined £12,000 for holding a birthday party just one day after the Downing Street one. So they write, Vianna Mackenzie Bramble, 28, was hit with the punishment for the outdoor celebration on April the 17th last year, when around 40 people enjoyed food, drink, a DJ set and a bouncy castle on the Hackney estate where she lives. So her party was outside, there were 40 people in Downing Street, there were 30 people inside. Which one sounds more dangerous to you? 
Um, it gets more ridiculous because in his supporting statement for the prosecution, the police officer who charged Mackenzie Bramble wrote the following. I explained to Vienna that there needed to be consequences for her actions, namely organising such a large gathering during a time when there is still such a significant risk to public health. On this day, in particular, it was the funeral of His Royal Highness, the Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Philip. The country is in mourning and only limited members of his close family were able to attend the ceremony. Vienna being so blasé about organising such a large and illegal event for her 27th birthday party is totally unacceptable and disrespectful in light of everything that is going on in the world. So if you live on a, a council estate in Hackney and you have one of these parties, you get fined £12,000 if you have a similar party in Downing Street, well, up to now, you get away with it. Aaron, that report from the police officer to the prosecution, you know, encouraging them to, to give her a, a, a decent fine, that could have been written about the people in Downing Street, couldn't it? Yeah, I think <clears throat> I think the police have a major problem here, Michael. I mean, we, we've talked about their inability to investigate, you know, what clear to be, you know, what, what seems to be rather repeated breaches of, of guidelines, potentially the law. I mean... When wasn't there a party at 10 Downing Street? You know, we know when there was a party. Every day the list grows. What day, you know, we're going to get to a point where we're going to say, what day wasn't there a party? And this is, by the way, this is meant to be the centre of government during the greatest national crisis since the Second World War. And every day they're having boulevards and uh, mini magnums and Prosecco out in the number 10 garden. I mean, it, it kind of defies belief and illustrates how unseriously they take government, particularly in a crisis. There were police officers, I heard an amazing account actually, maybe you saw it as well, Michael, on LBC with uh, James O'Brien. Less said about him, the better. But the guest was really impressive. It was a police officer who basically had to, who was stopping people from attending funerals and cremations and making sure basically that guidelines were being adhered to and their you know, capacity wasn't, wasn't broken. People weren't going over the, 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 the number of permitted people in an indoor space. And he said he broke down in tears on radio while talking about this, while recounting the story. And he said, I stopped people saying farewell to their loved ones. And I feel like an idiot because that's what was happening at 10 Downing Street. And of course, he shouldn't feel like an idiot that he was doing his job. But what's going to happen now, Michael, is that people are going to look at the police. They're going to look at the, the clear double standard that was applied to politicians, the elite, the 1% and them. And they're rightly going to ask quite profound questions as to who is the law meant to apply to more broadly. And that's going to create problems for the police. And I think, justifiably, it should create resentment within the police by those officers who had to implement these regulations and these guidelines and these laws, often quite permeable boundaries between all three, and their superiors. Because their superiors don't seem to have a problem with Downing Street doing what they did. And yet they've had to face all kinds of confrontation and enmity and upset people, people who are bereaving because they want to uphold the law. I personally think, Michael, we need to start a campaign of having all the people who are fined, have, having those fines returned to them, potentially by maybe some kind of a uh, crowdfunder. And we could uh, start with a big donation from the Sun newspaper and uh, Boris Johnson. Maybe it could come out the proceeds of the next book he's going to write, presumably once he's out of office. Yeah, I think James Slack could definitely put some cash into that pile. And we'll talk about him in a bit more detail in a moment. I mean, that point about the cop is is really important because I do think not only do people feel let down and like they had a harder time than people had in Downing Street, but it's also the statements of people who are part of the government or Tory MPs that sort of basically proactively tell people that they did the wrong thing when they were doing what the government told them to do. So you remember when... Dominic Cummings sort of broke all of those rules and, and Boris Johnson came out and said he did what any good father would do. Any good father would break the rules to drive across the country when they had COVID-19. Then Michael Fabricant, we showed that on, on the last episode of Tisky Sour, he said any boss who wasn't a cold fish would have let workers have a, a, a drinks party if they'd been working very hard. Now that makes anyone who was following the rules over the past two years feel like they were being, you know, unnecessarily mean. Then Jacob Rees-Mogg stands up in Parliament and says, oh, actually, these rules are a bit too hard for people to apply to. If you're a police officer and you spent a year applying those rules, you're going to feel pretty goddamn annoyed that you were doing what you were told to do by the government. And now the government is saying, maybe you were a bit heartless by enforcing those rules. It's just offensive to so many people. And it's no wonder, I mean, that people are really, really, really angry about all of this. 
The ongoing revelations about Downing Street parties are doing serious damage to the Conservatives' standing among the British public. YouGov conducted polling across Monday and Tuesday this week. So that was while news about the Downing Street party on the 20th of May was breaking. So that polling shows Labour on 38%, up one from the week prior. The Conservatives on 28%, down five from the week prior. So you've got a huge shift there and a 10-point lead for Labour. Really significant, really different from, from what we've been seeing over the past weeks and months. Now, because it was such an eventful week, YouGov did two polls this week. Normally, we just get one a week. They did another poll this Wednesday and Thursday. So as you'll know, Wednesday was Boris Johnson's non-apology in Parliament. So we can see how that shifted public opinion, how that changed the public mood. And the results are in. So good news for Boris Johnson. The apology might have persuaded a couple of people because the Tories are up one on 29. Unfortunately for Boris Johnson, Labour are up two on 40. So we now have an 11-point lead for the Labour Party. Not many people have bought that Boris Johnson didn't realise he was a party. He thought he was at a work meeting. Aaron, that 11-point gap is is massive. How low will the Tories need to go before Tory MPs think we've got to get rid of this guy quickly because there is a certain, you know, there is a certain position you can go to in the polls where it's very, very difficult to recover? Yeah, I think there's a few dynamics here. I mean, there was some analysis by the New Statesman. I think it was on this YouGov poll. There is not a deluge of people going from the Conservatives to the Labour Party over this. So I think from from one of these polls, not both of them, I mean, that's, that's a general trend anyway. But from mm. one of these two YouGov polls, and I believe it's this one, only 5% of 2019 Conservative voters are going to Labour. 5%. Very low. Hey, better than nothing, but it's very low. I think about 33% aren't going to vote. They're apathetic. 47% staying with the Conservatives. 6% going to the, the Reform UK party, the Lawrence Fox thing, 6%. So more, more 2019 Tory voters going there than Labour. Uh, and then you've got the Lib Dems. I think they're somewhere in the teens. It's an, a striking and important political issue, both for the Conservatives and for Labour. And it shows opportunities for both. You know, the situation, reading that, can be salvaged. I'm not saying the Conservatives keep their majority from 2019. That does look very unlikely. But it can be salvaged to some extent because only 5% of those voters in that poll are going to the Labour Party. So what that tells Labour is, hey, look, we've got a 10-point lead and we're not even actually attracting that many Tories. That says we don't need to win over loads of critical Tories because so much of their votes turned off by Boris Johnson. And if we do, that's only going to go higher. So I'm not saying it's necessarily a negative thing for Labour. It's an opportunity, but they shouldn't rest on their laurels. Equally for the Conservatives, they'll be saying, well, look, if we can get that 6% back from the Reform Party, if we can get loads of those apathetic voters back on side, I might be able to keep my seat wherever that may be. So it's a very volatile situation, Michael. And I think for those of us watching and thinking, wow, Labour, 10 points ahead, a few things to keep in mind. One poll in 2018, I believe, had Labour on 45% under Jeremy Corbyn. Look where he ended up. Politics right now, wherever you are, is incredibly volatile. Just go back to last May. The Conservatives had an extraordinary set of local election results. And now Boris Johnson, as I said earlier, his personal approval ratings are where Jeremy Corbyn's were after the 2019 general election. So things change very quickly. If you go back to the uh, Miliband Cameron years between 2010 and 2015, there were polls where Labour were 10 points ahead of the Tories. Didn't count for anything on election day in, uh, in May 2015. So it's a long way off. Of course, it's incredibly positive. And I think it's almost certainly curtains for Boris Johnson. But I, I think it would be wishful thinking still, two years out from a general election, with you know boundaries still being changed, to say that this necessarily means a, a Labour government or a Labour majority. I think saying a Labour majority is priced in when they're only getting 5% of Tory voters, I think is a very brave claim to make. But look, this is obviously very, very good for Labour. It's obviously very bad for the Conservatives. Question is, can Labour drive at home? And how are the Tories going to respond? That point of where these people are going is an important one because it, a similar thing happened to the Labour Party actually after 2015, which was that they went really low in the polls, but people hadn't really shifted to other parties. And if they had, it was to small parties like the Greens or the Lib Dems who tend to get squeezed in general elections anyway. The general election comes around, people have a, a changed impression of, of Jeremy Corbyn because he's going on television more and they see that this is a two-horse race and then basically they all flood back to Labour. So it is very possible that all of these people who've 
said they're no longer going to vote the Conservatives, but have switched to don't know or have switched to smaller parties like Reform UK. When it comes to a general election, and again, it's a two-horse race, they could come flooding back to the Conservatives, or especially um, if, if the Conservatives have a new leader or if Boris Johnson's career has got a new lease of life and he's somehow saved himself. Although, as Aaron says, his, his personal ratings are now so low, I don't think we do have examples of anyone recovering from those levels. Obviously, Jeremy Corbyn recovered from fairly low um, approval ratings just before the 2017 general election. But once they fell after that, they they never really recovered. And I think Boris Johnson could easily be at that terminal point right now. So just a, just a matter of time as the, the Tory MPs work out precisely when they're going to stick in the knife. Next story. As revelations of Downing Street parties have slowly trickled out, we've often asked this question. Which Westminster journalists knew? Given how close MPs and journalists are, indeed they're often married to each other, it would be a surprise if a rule-breaking party to which a hundred people were invited had gone completely under the radar. We now have confirmed at least one mainstream journalist who did know about parties at Downing Street. That's because one of them was for him. James Slack was Director of Communications for Boris Johnson until April 2021, and one of the two parties which were held on the day before Prince Philip's funeral, was James Slack's leaving to. The job Slack left Downing Street for, deputy editor of The Sun. Slack today released an apology via News UK, that's the company which owns The Sun. So he said, I wish to apologise unreservedly for the anger and hurt caused. This event should not have happened at the time that it did. I am deeply sorry and take full responsibility. James Slack said he could not comment any further on the matter as it had been referred to an investigation being carried out by Sue Gray. So the same excuse that everyone involved in this has had so far. I'm sorry if I've caused offence, but I'm also not going to answer any of the facts of the matter, even though I clearly know them all because I was there. I'm going to wait for some civil servant to answer the question. Aaron, for almost nine months, The Sun have missed an exclusive sitting right in front of their noses. They've let The Telegraph take it. And I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if The Telegraph knew for a while, considering how close they are to people in number 10. Why has it taken nine months? I have a sort of theory, Michael, that The Telegraph went with it to take the pressure off Prince Andrew. Quite mm. interesting to see the different newspapers with their different affiliations and political priorities and their values and, and, and what they're willing to dead cat. I don't think The Telegraph wants to talk about 10 Downing Street. I'm sure they probably would have preferred to talk about, you know, our, our story a bit later on, the Chinese Communist Party or whatever. But it takes a bit of uh, heat off, off Her Majesty's son. Perhaps just a theory. Uh, in terms of the son's coverage of this, you know, for our audience out there, anybody, anyone who's watched Succession with Brian Cox and a plethora of other actors, a great drama, you know, it's based on the life of Rupert Murdoch. The news network that that's based around is Fox News, built by Rupert Murdoch and Roger Rails. And believe me when I say this, Reality is more sensational than fiction. And these outlets and how they operate and what stories they don't let, uh, don't allow to be released to the public and what they choose to cover and not cover, sins of omission and commission, are astonishing. And I think this is just the latest example of that. You know, the fact we have somebody who is going from 10 Downing Street to the sun and it's just taken for granted. It's just normal. And of course, the, the, the fact the story isn't covered, well, I mean, we can infer as to why. How many more stories are there, Michael? And I can't help but go back to Matt Hancock. The Sun, of course, got that exclusive. We still don't know where that camera came from. And the fact that they can make or break a, a member of the cabinet and then they protect one of their own like this, I mean, it does say a lot about the relationship between politics and media in this country, and it's not a healthy one. If a billionaire-owned billionaire newspaper like The Sun, which, by the way, doesn't make money, which would appear to indicate that it's owned purely to advance political interests, those of the Murdoch family. If a billionaire-owned newspaper can make or break politicians who are elected by the people, I think that says something quite dangerous and terrifying about the quality of the democracy we live under. It is also worth, I think, appreciating the alternative sequence of events where we didn't find out any of this, because I, I think that's quite possible. If, if you think about what has happened, the sequence of events, which means we have found out about these parties, it could easily have not been the case. So what happened? The first ones we, we learned about were at the beginning of December. That was clearly because someone who now finds himself factionally opposed to Boris Johnson decided that they wanted to leak a very old story. They leaked it to the Mirror, a newspaper who they 
knew would probably want to run with it because they're they're not a pro-government story. The Mirror ran a bunch of stories before the Telegraph then piled in, before the other newspapers piled in. So I think the Telegraph and the Sun, etc., would have sat on these stories forever if it wasn't the case that there was someone who didn't like Boris Johnson or potentially a, a former ally of Boris Johnson who turned against him, who then leaked it to the only real left-wing paper in the country. So if, if there hadn't been that factional opposition within Downing Street, we would never have found out. Can you see sort of like an alternative sequence of events where this is just, you know, everyone who went to those parties takes them to their graves? Michael, it's such a great point. And, you know, the, the Mirror might not exist as a major publication in this country, say, five years' time. The Daily Mirror is owned by Reach. It's a big organisation, has lots of local newspapers. But the Daily Mirror, the, the Sunday Mirror, in terms of circulation, has been hammered more than any other major newspaper over the last 20 years. And it's not slowing down. So they're going to have big problems. And I can't help but think of a, a media landscape like Australia, where Rupert Murdoch, I think at one point, owned like 60% of all the newspapers in circulation in the country. It's something extraordinary. And if you didn't have a paper like The Mirror, I, I don't particularly like The Mirror. I don't think it's a great newspaper. I don't, you know, I think I like The Guardian. I, I read The Guardian. I don't read many Mirror stories. Of, of course, these Mirror scoops have been really good. I'm not criticizing that. But prior to that, The Mirror hadn't really broken any stories for a really long time. I certainly wouldn't buy it. Just my personal opinion. You know, people can choose to read or watch or listen to whatever they like. But if it hadn't existed, like you say, Michael, there wouldn't have been this sort of ideological ballast that we need. And I think it, that, to me, is emblematic of the arguments for media diversity. Whether or not you're on the left or the right or the centre, you do need a, a range of, of outlets with different viewpoints and different interests. Otherwise, you will have stories like this sat on very frequently. And of course, we see that a lot. We see that, for instance, with how stories on the Labour left are reported. We saw it in the asymmetry of how if a left winger says something objectionable on social media, they would be crucified, destroyed. If a centrist does it, we've got a number of stories like that. The, the, the story of the councillor in the last week, Philip Normal, if they do it, it's reported on a wholly different way. I mean, some of these stories, they're not even reported on at all. And the reason why they're not reported on at all is because the Mirror or The Guardian don't have any interest in reporting on it. Of course, nor do the right-wing press. So you have a kind of fait accompli between the right-wing and the centre-left press. You kind of just squeeze out left-wing stories or stories where socialists are being demonised unfairly and you kind of ignore it because, bah, why do we care? And so I think that really is an argument for diverse media ownership, a diversity of newspapers, broadcast channels, et cetera, et cetera. And while I do think the BBC does serve a very important purpose which is public service broadcasts. You know, we, we talked a few weeks ago, last week rather, about, well, why haven't we had widespread COVID sort of conspiracy theories in this country like in the US? The big kind of answer for me on that is the fact we've got this big public service broadcaster, 70, 80% of radio and TV news market shares. The BBC is good for some things, but it's not very good for exclusives. It's not very good for original news gathering to set the news agenda. It doesn't want to do that because it doesn't want to upset the powers that be, because of course, government determines BBC budgets on a, on a decade long basis. And so I think, yes, of course, you need the BBC, you need public service broadcast, but I would like to see greater subsidies for, like I say, a broader range of media outlets, both by geographical spread. We need to, you know, subsidize local news in this country, but also at the national level too. Because like you say, Michael, this story could have been sat on. And the, the terrifying thing is there are stories of this magnitude which have been sat on, but precisely the reason you're saying. A couple of good arguments there to support Navarro Media. I think one way you can do that is if you have any pictures of Boris Johnson breaking any rules, my DMs are open. The other way you can do that is you can go to navarromedia.com slash support and we ask for the equivalent of one hour's wage a month so we can keep growing as an organisation. I should also say, actually, those two asks are somewhat linked because even if someone does come into my DMs with some evidence of, of, of Boris Johnson breaking some rules, we're going to need some pretty good legal advice before we put that out there because lots of people like to sue small left-wing organisations. So we want to make sure everything's watertight and that does require your financial support. So thank you so much if you are already a Navara Media donut. We really do appreciate it. Let's go on to our next story. Since the explosive leak of an email inviting 100 Downing Street staff to a lockdown party, there's one name we've heard more than any other, that of Sue Gray. Gray is the senior civil servant tasked with investigating potentially rule-breaking parties, and the government are putting a lot of weight on what she finds. 
all of that, as you know, is the subject of a, uh, a proper uh, investigation by Sue Gray. It is being investigated by Sue Gray, a civil servant of the highest integrity and of the greatest reputation. That's why it's right that this is looked into independently by Sue Gray, and therefore it would be wrong for me to comment while she's doing that. I think it's right, as he was saying today in the House of Commons, that Sue Gray is given the time to conduct that investigation. There'll be a full counting of them. We, we, will, have to see what, we will have to see what comes out in the investigations. This will be part of the, uh, the investigations taken on by, by, by Sue Gray, and, and, and we must wait to see what, what comes through in that. I think it's important to stress that uh, all of these matters are being investigated by Sue Gray, um, a brilliant civil servant, someone who will investigate without fear or favour. Well, what he's saying is, I've asked Sue Gray to look into this as an he's independent figure. asking Sue Gray whether he was at the party. Sorry, that's not taking it seriously. Susanna, he's, he's asked her as an independent figure of the highest integrity to look into all aspects of these allegations and reports. I don't accept that he's in the wrong. We are waiting for an inquiry by a very formidable civil servant, Sue Gray, to conclude to... We can't judge what happened. We need to know the facts. Nadine Doris in that last clip made a very interesting slip. Instead of civil servant, she said servile servant. Very Freudian. As well as using Gray's forthcoming report as a way to avoid questions, these Tory ministers also seem keen to promote her independence, her thoroughness, and her impeccable career. However, a little dig into Gray's past as a civil servant shows a mixed record when it comes to holding the government to account. There are some examples of Gray being tough. Between 2012 and 2018, she was Director General of Propriety and Ethics in Whitehall, and her inquiry into then-Minister Damien Green saw him sacked for lying about using his Westminster laptop to view porn. An earlier inquiry into Conservative Chief Whip Andrew Mitchell also led to his resignation. That was for calling a Downing Street policeman a pleb. On the less tough side, though, Gray has also used her seniority to protect the government. In a 2015 article, BBC policy editor Chris Cook wrote that officials see her as a force of conservatism within the civil service. She is an internal critic of attempts to open up the old Whitehall machine to competition or scrutiny. Ms Gray is notorious for her determination not to leave a document trail. So you don't want to leave a document trail because you don't want accountability. Gray has also been reluctant to allow information to reach the public. This is from Chris Cook again. I know half a dozen occasions where Ms. Gray has intervened to tell departments to fight disclosures under the Freedom of Information Act. So don't leave a paper trail. And then if people ask for the paper trail, stonewall them. Try not to give it to them. Jason Evans is a campaigner for victims of Factor 8. That was a contaminated blood product that saw thousands of people infected with hepatitis and HIV during the 1970s and 80s. In 2018, his Freedom of Information requests to the Cabinet Office were repeatedly stonewalled by Sue Gray. She was quoted in Open Democracy as having said, Personally, I would favour the infected blood inquiry releasing the information in a managed way, as we tried to do with Chilcot. And that is so sinister. In, in other words, better to kick awkward information about government failure into the long grass instead of giving the public the full picture. Gray is also known to have advised Michael Gove that emails sent from his wife's private email address would not be susceptible to freedom of information requests. Turned out to not be the case, but she still um, told him that it was, which suggests she is, in short, someone more than happy to keep government misdeeds in the dark. All this is perhaps why Boris Johnson and his cabinet feel so comfortable directing us all to await her report instead of using the information in front of all of our eyes to come to our own conclusions. Beyond the personality of Sue Gray, there is also another reason for the confidence of Boris Johnson. That's because even if Gray were feeling tough when it came to investigating Downing Street parties, there is a limit to what she can conclude. That's first because the terms of reference of her investigation are set by the Prime Minister. The questions she's been given are determined by him. Second, because it is to the Prime Minister that she will ultimately report. Speaking on Radio 4, this was what former Private Secretary to Margaret Thatcher, Caroline Slowcock, had to say. 
But in this case, she's being asked to essentially investigate the prime minister. And civil servants, you know, people don't perhaps don't realise, but civil servants, although impartial, have only work for the ministers of the day. They don't work for parliament. They don't work for some wider public interest. You know, it is their job. And, and everything that uh, 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 is put in writing by a civil servant will be vetted by ministers. And in this case, we're talking about the prime minister. So she might have to make the recommendation to the prime minister that action should be taken against him. And he yeah. will see that and have to sign off on it. Yeah, and also he will look at the words in the report. I'm sure, I'm sure there will be some process for um, negotiating. That's right. Boris Johnson will have to agree to the report about Boris Johnson. Luckily for Gray, it seems that process might not be too difficult because the contents of her report will probably not upset her boss. And we know that already because it's already been leaked to the press. According to The Times, Gray's inquiries have found no evidence of criminality and she is also unlikely to find that Johnson breached the ministerial code. Gray is expected, however, to criticise the culture of drinking and socialising in Downing Street and to question the Prime Minister's judgement after he attended a drinks party during the first lockdown on May the 20th, 2020. Allies of Johnson believe he is most likely to receive a rap on the knuckles. Johnson, they say, will emerge damaged, but with his premiership intact. Aaron, we have heard all of this before, haven't we? Just like the report into the refurbishment of his flat, we'll have a civil servant that finds that Boris Johnson acted in a way which was ill-advised. Potentially there are some cultural problems to solve, but no one has broken any rules mm -hmm. and no one needs to stand down. End of story. Yeah, the dreaded C word, Michael, culture. Whenever you hear any kind of inquiry or report and they say culture, it basically is, it, it is. I'll, I'll translate this for our viewers. It means we're not going to blame anybody, any specific individuals off the hook. Don't worry. It's culture. It's, you should have a red warning sign saying bullshit when they say culture. <laughs> Look, Michael, the only question we need to talk about here on Siski Sarah this evening is when is Sue Gray going to get her damehood? Next year? The year after? The year after that? It's terrifying. And in order to ward against internal criticism or even basic transparency, these are the kinds of transactions we see between senior civil servants and elected politicians. I just want to say, Michael, whoever researched this, was it our new researcher here on Tisky Sour? What a great segment. I learned a great deal about Sue Gray just then because I was familiar with the story, but you've really detailed that forensically, dare I say, in terms of how bad the situation is. I think we, we, we do need to cover this more generally. Also, Michael, one thing you didn't mention is that there are a number of civil servants implicated in these stories too. And there's obviously going to be pressure on Sue Gray to not criticise her colleagues. It's a bit like when the police mark their own homework. At the very least, if we were talking about an independent process, and I'm not going to go down the Keir Starmer sort of juridical sort of route on this, you judge led. You, you, I mean, that's that's one argument. But the idea that a civil servant is going to determine whether the prime minister and other civil servants behave improperly, I don't think that sits well with anybody. Like I say, Michael, you just you just detailed why that argument is, is so ridiculous. And uh, I'm very grateful for it. I learned something new this evening as well. I'm going to link that into another request for support because you were absolutely right. That section was done by our brand new researcher. Tisky Sour up to now has been well, other than my fabulous co-host, a team of two, myself and, and James Fox, we have doubled the size of our team. We now have a researcher, Stephen Meffen. You should follow him on Twitter. I retweeted him today. So you can check him out via my feed. And we have a new producer starting in a couple of weeks as well. So it is all go at Tisky Sour. If you've noticed that I sound a little bit more intelligent over the past two weeks, that is precisely why. What I do want to show you is potentially what is going to happen after the Sue Gray report. So this is an exclusive in The Independent. And apparently, it's something called Operation Save Big Dog has been drawn up. And the idea is that officials will quit over Partygate so he can keep his job. So if anyone is named and blamed in this report, it is going to be someone below Boris Johnson. It will be a culture in the office. It'll be a mistake on his part. But the people who are actually to blame are civil servants. They're the people who will get thrown to the wolves, essentially, to protect Boris Johnson. Let's go to our next story.
Following the confirmation that Boris Johnson did attend a Downing Street party during lockdown, one of the first senior Tories to call for him to resign was Douglas Roth. Roth is an MP in Westminster and also an MSP in Holyrood and a leader of the Scottish Tories. He said this on Wednesday. If the Prime Minister attended this gathering party event in Downing Street on the 20th of May, then he could not continue as Prime Minister. So regretfully, I have to say that his position is no longer tenable. I spoke to the Prime Minister this afternoon uh, and I set out my reasons and I explained to him my position. How did he respond? Uh, I think discussions between myself and the Prime Minister understandably remain between us. Uh, He believes that he didn't do anything wrong uh, and he has put up a a defence for his position. But I also have to, to look at the information I've got in front of me Uh, and to stick with the position that I made quite clear yesterday, that if he did attend that party, he couldn't continue as Prime Minister. So on the same evening of that statement, Jacob Rees-Mogg went on to Newsnight to defend the Prime Minister. He was asked about Ross's position and said this. I would actually say that the Secretary of State for Scotland, who is a big figure, is very supportive of the Prime Minister, has made that absolutely clear. Douglas Ross has always been quite a lightweight figure, so I don't think that... Um, his, uh, so, so hang on, and, and hang on. the been, leader of the Scottish uh, Conservatives, an MSP well, and think, an MP is a lightweight I figure. Think, I think the Scottish Secretary is a much more substantial but we're and talking about figure in this. Scottish well, MSPs. Um, it wasn't just a slight on a Conservative colleague, though, what Rees Mogg said there. It was also an indication about what the Tory cabinet think about Scotland. The leader of the Scottish Conservatives is elected by Scottish Tories, and Jacob Rees Mogg thinks he's a lightweight. In contrast, the Scotland Secretary is appointed in Westminster, and for Rees-Mogg, it's the Scotland Secretary who counts as a substantial figure. That disparity was not lost on Nicola Sturgeon. I, um, I think, as we've just seen, have big political differences with Douglas Ross, uh, but even a high... I'm not as derogatory about him as his own Tory colleagues uh, are being. Uh, you know, not, not a big figure, lightweight. These might be personal insults directed at the leader of the Scottish Conservatives, but actually they say something much deeper about the Westminster establishment's utter contempt for Scotland. Uh, if they can't even show basic respect for their own colleagues, what chance do the rest of us have? The Conservative Shadow Justice Minister in Holyrood, Jamie Green, also recognised the damage Rees-Mogg's comments could do to the Scottish Tories. This is how he hit back. Not at all. It's a fine leader. He's got my full support. What's your message to Jacob Rees-Mogg? She's just going to have a long lie down, perhaps. Preferably not in the House of Commons. That was obviously a reference to that infamous picture of Jacob Rees-Mogg having a snooze on the benches in the House of Commons. Scottish Tories have now also suggested Boris Johnson will not be invited to their party conference. Aaron, the Downing Street parties are are blowing apart the Conservative Party. Could it also blow apart the union? It's going to be a factor in terms of the broader political debate over the next next several months, the next two years, but I I don't think it'll be the, the nail in the coffin of the union. I think going back to to Reese Mogg's kind of response on Newsnight, that was interesting because in politics, when you're under pressure and you're facing hostile questions, you have a few options. You defend, you attack, you counterattack, or you joke. And often Boris Johnson has not had to defend himself and he's used the other three, which are incredibly powerful tools because defending effectively is the hardest one to do as he found out at Prime, Minister, Prime Minister's questions. It's very, very hard to defend and in any way get on the front foot by virtue of what you're doing. But sometimes you just have to do it because of the gravity of the situation. Of course, Jacob Rees-Mogg has one instinct, which is attack. Um, so in a way, you know, it's, that can serve its purpose. It changes the conversation. It relieves pressure. But uh, it also has its downsides. And here, you know, he's, he's, he's basically shit-talking potentially 31 of his colleagues uh, and it does it does show a dismissal for Scots by English Conservatives. You know, Alistair Jack, who is the Scottish Secretary, has only been an MP since 2017. He has a tiny he has a tiny majority in his constituency. He's not really done anything of substance as a parliamentarian. I mean, I think Jacob Rees-Mogg thinks he's a more substantial figure because he's a private landowner. He's a very wealthy man. He's a multi-millionaire. That's probably what counts as important and esteemed and worthy of respect in Jacob Rees-Mogg's book. 
But in, as a political figure, I, I think he's just pulled that out of his backside. So it does show a, a basic contempt for Scots. And I think if you look at all the opinion polling, even with Labour, there's a poll out this evening as well, very well, I think. They're on 42. The YouGov one we spoke about earlier on 40. Even with these polls, that they're really not making big inroads into Scotland because the SNP are so on top of the political messaging and the culture and the operationally, they're just such an, uh, an established organisation up there. Very, very impressive. And I, I think you're right that this kind of rhetoric from the Conservatives, which has been the dominant rhetoric coming from the Conservatives since 2016, it does probably enhance the power of Scottish nationalists and it does enhance their arguments. The thing is, of course, people like Jacob Rees-Mogg, Boris Johnson, they might not be in the driving seat of the Conservative Party for much longer. If it does try to go back to the centre to be a more moderate Cameroon-style party, I don't like David Cameron. I think in many ways he's the worst Prime Minister of my lifetime. Far more toxic than Boris Johnson if you look at the, the results and consequences of austerity. But if they do go back in that direction, then it doesn't mean they start winning seats back in Scotland. But it does begin to show that there isn't this huge chasm, this gulf between the politics of Scotland and England. Right now, that's getting sort of broader every day because people like Boris Johnson and, and Liz Truss and Jacob Rees-Mogg, very conservative, very English political figures on the television. So, yeah, if Jacob Rees-Mogg is, is at the top of the Tory party for another couple of years, I think that definitely helps the cause of independence. But as we've spoken about so far, that looks less and less likely given the personal approval ratings of Boris Johnson. That angle that Alistair Jack, the Scotland secretary, is, is a landowner and comes from aristocracy, whereas Douglas Ross doesn't, that had completely gone over my head. But that does, that does make a lot of sense. I can imagine that that was definitely um, an undercurrent there when Jacob Rees-Mogg says, this man is worth my attention, this man is not. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's, that's his calculus, right? And I, 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 th there is no other plausible explanation for it other than he's just making it up. So let's be charitable. Let's say there was a reason for him saying it. There you go. He's a landowner. He's wealthy. He 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 looks and he sounds just like Jacob Rees-Mogg. No, it wasn't a slight on Scotland. It was a slight on people who don't own lots of land. A very Jacob Rees-Mogg style excuse. I wouldn't be surprised if he came out with that, to be honest. We are going to go from one group of wrongans to another. Prince Andrew has been stripped of his military honours and will no longer be allowed to style himself HRH or His Royal Highness. The decision followed a New York court ruling on Wednesday, which means that Andrew must either face his accuser, that's Virginia Giuffray, in court or agree an out-of-court settlement. Whichever happens, he will do so, formally at least, as a private citizen. As is now well known, Jeffrey alleges Andrew sexually assaulted her three times when she was only 17 years old. Jeffrey was at the time in the hands of paedophile Jeffrey Epstein and his sex trafficking accomplice, Ghislaine Maxwell. Andrew has, of course, always denied those allegations. As to whether a settlement might be possible before any jury trial goes ahead, Jeffrey's lawyers have said... I think it's very important to Virginia Giuffray that this matter be resolved in a way that vindicates her and vindicates the other victims. I don't think that she has a firm view at this point, nor could she, as to exactly what the resolution should be. But I think what's going to be important is that this resolution vindicates her and vindicates the claim she's made. A purely financial settlement is not anything that I think she's, that's Giuffray, is interested in. So reading between the lines there, what it seems is that a settlement that Jeffrey would be prepared to accept would have to involve some admission, implicit or otherwise, of guilt on the part of Prince Andrew. And I presume that's precisely why the Queen and the Royals have finally decided that now they are going to cut him loose. Let's go to some tweets from Virginia Giuffray as well. Um, so Virginia Giuffray has, has tweeted, I'm pleased with Judge Kaplan's ruling yesterday that allows my case against Prince Andrew to go forward. I'm glad I will have the chance to continue to expose the truth and I am deeply grateful to my extraordinary legal team. Their determination helps me seek justice from those who hurt me and so many others. My goal has always been to show that the rich and powerful are not above the law and must be held accountable. The Queen's decision to strip Andrew of his military affiliation followed an unprecedented letter sent to her by 150 ex-servicemen and women. That letter contained this stinging assessment 
Officers of the British Armed Forces must adhere to the very highest standards of probity, honesty and honourable conduct. These standards, which Andrew has fallen well short of. It is hard not to see when senior officers are reportedly describing him as toxic that he has brought the services he is associated with into disrepute. Now, you know what we think at Navarra Media. These military honours, all of this is pretty much nonsense. It's for show. Being an honorary officer of the British Armed Forces, what does that mean? It's meaningless. It's puffed up. It's the kind of pageantry that I think there should be no place for anyway. And also, I think what this sort of recent twist shows is that the Windsors are now desperate to distance themselves from Prince Andrew as, as quickly, as completely as possible. But you've got to say, why is that? And I think it's because they are clearly taking Giuffre's determination very seriously. It's, it's that determination which seems to have made the difference here. Because other than that, not much has changed. This now infamous photo of Andrew with 17-year-old Giuffre was not enough for the royal family to cut ties with Prince Andrew. Neither were his ludicrous claims that she couldn't be trusted because on the day he was supposed to have met her, he was at Pizza Express in Woking and because of a unspecified injury in the Falklands, the man cannot sweat. None of these things were remotely plausible. Anyone with any sense has seen this as someone who has a case to answer, someone who went and stayed with Jeffrey Epstein even after he was convicted as a sex offender. And yet, right up until now, he has remained His Royal Highness. I mean, what this shows is it's actually quite easy to take these things away from him, but they will only act once someone has to go through a really, really long legal process, fight Prince Andrew's legal team. Finally, it's the case that he's going to have to answer for himself in court. Only now, only now do they take away these titles. And I say he's now formally fighting this as an individual. Formally, yes, he's not going to go to court as his royal highness, but we've seen it reported this week that his legal fees are going to be paid by the queen. Now she says that's from my private income source. She doesn't have a private income source, right? Her property, her land, she has that by virtue of being the head of the British state. So he's formally going into this as a private citizen. He's actually going into this as an incredibly privileged individual and an incredibly privileged individual because he was born into the British royal family. Aaron, is it, you know, a mild relief to see Andrew stripped of his HRH title or is this all just too little too late? Super interesting question. I mean, it obviously should have happened sooner. Like you say, it was very easy to do. I mean, perhaps a barrier to it was Prince Philip. Obviously, he passed away relatively recently. But still, you know, that still would mean this decision could have been made six months ago. And presumably, like you say, the only inference that one can draw is that it wasn't made because they didn't think things would get this far. Important to sort of really impress how astonishing, really, the kind of commitment here from Virginia Dufresne and her family is to really seek justice. I mean, to take on a royal, to take on a son of, of, of Her Royal Highness, the Queen of uh, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, all its crown dependencies, yada, yada, yada. One of the most powerful people in the Anglophone world, at least. And she's gone for it. And, and they've, they've really had to take a backward step. And what's interesting as well, I think, is the kind of media approach to this from Buckingham Palace is very pre-digital. They rely on utter obsequiousness from uh, journalists, from the media. They anticipate, rightly so, in Britain, that British journalists will never criticise or disparage the royals, maybe briefly. Or maybe they might comment on a, a character flaw, but they would never you know, insinuate criminal activity or wrongdoing by them. What they didn't think about was we're no longer in that age, particularly if you think about Princess Diana. We're not in a broadcast era, 1997, where if you can win the air war on the radio and the television and the newspapers, you're fine. Because you also have this other world, of digital media. You've got podcasts talking about Jeffrey Epstein. You've got, of course, the, the United States being a variable here too. And Brits can read news sources from the United States. Might seem like quite a strange thing to say, but again, 20 years ago, that wasn't really the case. And so they've got very much a 20th century media approach to this, where they think they can kill it by basically guaranteeing the, the obsequious nature of the British press. That only gets you so far now, because people have other news sources. And I think purely by virtue of the content of the story, you know, we're talking about 
potential people trafficking. We're talking about the world's most famous pedophile, Michael, being a close friend of his. I think by virtue of the, the story, you know, even if he killed somebody allegedly in a hit and run, I don't think it would be as bad as this. So they've got their media strategy all wrong. They're playing the press like it's the 20th century. And maybe they just don't grasp the extent and the evil that Je Jeffrey Epstein was guilty of. Maybe they've just sort of taken it for granted. But now it seems that's coming home. And hence we see changes in the last few days with regards to HRH being removed from his title. I think the Ghislaine Maxwell verdict is important as well because Prince Andrew's excuse was always, oh no, I wasn't really friends with Jeffrey Epstein. I just stayed in his flat when I was in New York, even when he was a convicted sex offender. That's That was always Andrew's line. He said, I was really friends with Ghislaine Maxwell. Ghislaine Maxwell was my friend. And it was when I was hanging out with her that I incidentally saw Jeffrey Epstein. Now, that sort of excuse and explanation from Prince Andrew sounds like much less of an excuse. Now, she's also been found guilty of sex trafficking. The America angle, I think, also super interesting because there are many reasons to believe that if someone such as Virginia Dufresne went through this process, trying to take on Prince Andrew in British courts or living amongst the British press, she might have been given reason to stop pursuing this. But there's a bit of distance, at least, because she's an American citizen. You saw a similar thing with Harry and Meghan, obviously, where, where some of the most damning stuff about the royals had to be broadcast from the United States because it's a bit too hot for broadcasters in this country who all have their completely obsequious royal correspondence. Final story. MPs have been warned of a Chinese agent operating within their midst. MI5 issued this warning to the House of Commons about Christine Lee. Um, she is a North London solicitor. So the security service inference alert here highlights the UFWD or the United Front Work Department as a state threat actor. You can see that on the left there. And they say Lee, who's pictured there, has worked covertly with them. The United Front Work Department is a Chinese government agency reportedly charged with running covert operations to build Chinese influence abroad. The warning explains that Lee has been engaged in the facilitation of financial donations to political parties, parliamentarians, aspiring parliamentarians, and individuals seeking political office in the UK, including facilitating donations to political entities on behalf of foreign nationals. Lee has publicly stated that her activities are to represent the UK Chinese community and increase diversity. However, the aforementioned activity has been undertaken in covert coordination with the UF. WD. And to remind you, the UFWD, that's a Chinese government agency, which is alleged to be sort of seeking explicitly to have influence abroad. Christine Lee is a longtime Westminster figure who has provided funding for a number of, of MPs. Most significant among those is Barry Gardner, who received half a million pounds to pay staff in his office. That was over a number of years. After the MI5 warning was released, he said this to Sky. Did you ever discuss Labour Party policy with her? I mean, I recall you were Peter Mandelson's PPS at one stage. You were a minister under Mr Blair. You were a shadow minister. Energy, I think, was one of your portfolios, or was it business? Um, power stations, all those sort of things, issues with the Chinese and their investments in UK power stations. Did you discuss policy with her? Uh, no, not in great detail, no. Not um, in great detail? No, I, I, absolutely not. Uh, I had conversations She must have got, out, got something out of it there. I mean, here she is, she's handing well, over all this money. I mean, why was she doing it then if she wasn't trying to find out what you were up to as a Labour frontbencher? Well, I, I think she must have felt it was a very poor investment if she did uh, seek to get something out of it, um, because I have been critical of the Chinese government on many, many occasions. If they were looking for somebody who was compliant, uh, then they will have not found it in me. But and that's why it makes me really angry that they sought uh, to have some sort of influence in that way. Um, and I'm very angry about that. Uh, but I've always been absolutely clear with our security services what the relationship is. Barry Gardner is not the only Westminster politician who has had a relationship with Lee. In 2019, she was invited to Downing Street to receive an award from the then Prime Minister Theresa May that was for contributing to good relations between the UK and China. Lee is also reported to have built good relations with David Cameron when he was Prime Minister. Aaron, there were lots of journalists making a very big deal out of 
this story. So I'm even suggesting, oh, this is the big deal that we should be talking about instead of the Downing Street parties. A little bit transparent there, potentially the motives. But w- w- what do you make of this? Is this as worrying as, as some are suggesting? We don't know. I mean, what's what, what for me really stands out, Michael, is this story was being covered by the Mail in 2020. I think you can go back and find it in the Times as far back as 2017. And Barry Gardner insists that he was getting these payments. He was saying to the security services, is this okay? And they're saying, yeah, it's fine. It's vetted. Ultimately, I think that, you know, the responsibility on this should be, if you're saying that somebody is persona non grata, they can't be, she was a British national, by the way. And that was a little bit misleading in the John Craig interview saying, why are you taking money off a Chinese person? She was a UK national. I think it's very dangerous if we go down a path and say, well, somebody of Iranian or Russian or Chinese heritage, they're funding a political party. If they're involved in a political party, they're, they're, they've got dual intentions going on. If people said that about British Jews and they inferred that they had a, a dual kind of uh, interest, that's one of the sort of basic arguments that say, well, that's anti-Semitic. I don't see why it's any different to make the same assertion with regards to somebody of Chinese or Russian or Iranian heritage or any other country. Frankly, she was a British national, first thing. John Craig didn't really make that clear. Barry Gardner had to confirm it. However, I'm not in any way defending this lady in this instance. This happens a lot. And it's great value for money, by the way, Michael. You think about Chinese interests in ports or airports, infrastructure, energy contracts. You can drop a million here, a million there in Italy, in France, in Britain, in the US. Even if 10% of the time it works, you're getting real returns on investment. So it's important. And what it confirms to me is, you know where the cleanest money comes in politics? Trade unions. If we didn't have people giving vast sums of money to politicians, this wouldn't even be an issue on the table, regardless of where they come from, regardless of whether they're representing the interests of another country. So yes, I think we need to talk about it. I also think we need to talk about interest representation from a range of countries, by the way. The United States, Israel, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Qatar. That would be a really important conversation for me. I personally don't think that British politicians should be subject to paid influence by other countries. People seem to care with this story, rightly so. Let's take the prin- that principle and apply it elsewhere. So, yes, and also I think the immediate response that you say, Michael, was just so brazen. Gabriel Pogrand, he wrote a great book with Patrick McGuire on Corbynism. I, I like him. I think he does good journalism. But he immediately shared the story and had a picture of Corbyn with this lady, and it's kind of got shallow depth of field. So it looks like they're close to each other, but actually there's probably two or three people between them. Of course he does that rather than share the image of her talking directly to none other than David Cameron, a former prime minister. You have a bit of an agenda there, perhaps, Gabriel. So yes, there was very much the stench of a dead cat given that this story's been in circulation for years, given it was being pushed so hard by journalists at various right-wing outlets. I mean, another one was Alex Wickham. He has a particular alleged relationship towards the prime minister we don't need to talk about. But again, I would uh, I would suggest there's more going on here than merely a, a quest for the truth. I think we probably can talk about Alex Wickham's alleged relationship. So he's supposed to be, obviously we can't confirm this, I think it's something that Dominic Cummings suggested, the godfather of... Wilfred Johnson, so the son of, of Carrie and and Boris. And he also writes the Politico Morning email. I use it quite a lot in this show. It's very useful. But I think to, to have that, that close association with the Johnson family, and, and then yesterday to not really tweet about the parties, but tweet about this story, a little bit suspect there. Um, yeah, as, I mean, I, I think we're on the same page on this, Aaron. I mean, I, I, I don't think we should have foreign governments funding MPs, staffers, and especially not if that's not transparent. We think the funding of political politicians and parties, or politicians are political, sorry, the funding of politicians and, and parties should be transparent and should be as minimal as possible, actually. I'd prefer the state to fund MPs to have enough researchers that they don't have to go to someone who, I mean, she'd said she was sort of collecting money from the Chinese community in Britain. In fact, it seems that some of it was coming from the Communist Party in China. But you could say the same thing about JP Morgan. They're, all, they're always paying for people to have various researchers and they're paying for that person to have a researcher because they think the researcher is going to help the MP ask questions that they will find useful. So I don't see it as that outrageous compared to other examples of, of lobbying and, and influence in, in Parliament. And it all seems a little bit red scare the way that we are, tr- we, we are told to treat this as something which is existential Whereas JP Morgan doing it, that's perfectly fine and normal. We are about to wrap up. Any final thoughts, Aaron, before we go? 
I think that's a really great point. I remember just before, really sort of before Corbynism, or maybe even the early years, there was a great story on, um, I think it was Chuck Rummer's office. You know, he had two or three people from a consultancy. And I remember raising this on social media saying, this is unbelievable. Because like you say, Michael, these people have a, a predetermined set of answers to every question. More privatization, more market, roll back the state, reduce taxes on the rich, right? Which was completely at odds with the agenda being led on by the Labour leadership at the time. And some people go, this is outrageous. What, so you think Deloitte and McKinsey are doing this from the goodness of their heart? They're giving these people for free for no reason? No, there's something in it for them. Influence over policy outcomes, which advantages them. If they weren't doing that, they'd be fools. And I think it's really good to put things in that context, Mark. You're absolutely right. Look, red flags literally should be going off or your warning signs should be going off if you have powerful foreign entities trying to influence the democratic politics of the UK, of course. But I agree with you, given the extent and the consequences of people like JP Morgan or KPMG or whatever, these consultancies, who don't appear to do anything apart from privatized stuff, that seems to have more egregious, I think, a catalogued history of egregious consequences on policymaking. And actually, that's made this country poorer, weaker, and more divided than anything that an outside power has accomplished over the last 20 years. So food for thought. Um, Aaron Vastani, let's wrap up their pleasure being joined by you on a Friday as a usual. My pleasure, Michael. Look, you are just getting better. Tisky sour, strength to strength. Can't believe it. Subscribe if you haven't already. Let's wrap up there. We'll be back on Monday at 7pm. Have a fabulous weekend. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.